This podcast is brought to you by Audible. Have you been wanting to read more, but don't seem to have the time? Well, with Audible, you can read your books without having to find the extra time in your busy schedule. Stuck in traffic on your way home from work? Why not marathon the Harry Potter books? In the gym and want to learn about the First Lady? Well, you can listen to Becoming Michelle Obama while doing leg day. And if you go to audibletrial.com cultivate, you get a month free of Audible. That includes one credit that you can trade in for any audiobook of your choice, access to thousands of audiobooks free to listen to with your account, and best of all, you have access to all of your favorite podcasts in the app as well. So be sure to go to my link, audibletrial.com cultivate. That's C-U-L-T-I-V, the number eight, to sign up for a free month of Audible and start reading today. Thank you, Audible, for supporting the show. So I've been asked to do some promo for these two lads, Ryan and Paul, for their podcast, Cold Callers Comedy. Quite honestly, I've never listened to it because it sounds like sh**. But what I can tell you is that my show, Artie's Artist Acts, is one of the segments, and that is an absolute peaky blinder you can't miss out on. Whoa, what the hell, Tom? You meant to promote our show, not slag it off. I couldn't care less, mate. Well, you should. You're on the podcast. Yeah, how about a little gratitude? Brain, show them how grateful we are. Your precious podcast. Gratefully accepted. Um, we're not giving it to you. Admirable. What a mistake. So yeah, listen to my show, Cold Callers Comedy, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and all the other podcast platforms. The podcast rises. Come here. Hi, Fred. My name is Josh Shell, host of the Let's Start a Call podcast the only podcast to be banned from TikTok for speaking against QAnon. That's right, TikTok is now a confirmed QAnon supporter, and that is definitely not a conspiracy theory. Now with that out of the way, let me introduce to you my guests this episode. They are from the dark and informative true crime podcast, Crime and Compulsion. From serial killers to unsolved mysteries, this amazing husband and wife duo tackle it all. Please welcome to the podcast, Karen and Ben. How are you guys doing today? Hey, we're doing good. Amazing. Wow. That's awesome. awesome. Thank you for describing us that way. <laughs> <laughs> How would you, did I, did I miss anything? <laughs> oh no, that's way better than I could have done it. So <laughs> <laughs> perfect. <laughs> In today's episode of let's start a cult. We will be talking about Charles Manson and the horrific murder spree that he orchestrated. Arguably one of the most infamous cult leaders of all time. The things that he ordered his family to do forever shattered the sense of safety and security that the American public enjoyed. Now, so, so this episode actually came together much differently than many of my other episodes. Uh, usually I just surprise my guests with a cult, mostly because I enjoy the fear that they don't know what's coming. <laughs> but you guys actually requested to do the Manson family together. So I have to ask off the bat, what is it about the Manson family that uh, made you want to come on the show? You want to answer that or you want me to go, Ben? Uh, Karen is obsessed with that case. That's what made us want to do it. (laughs) He tries, you know, he tries to be like, oh, he's this big, real hippie guy, but he's like a sociopath troubadour, right? Like he just, he wanted to be a rock star. He was a con man and he's not this hippie guy. Yeah, he does come off portrayed a lot in the media as uh, just this hippie, probably because of the drugs mostly. uh, (laughs) And the long hair. (laughs) And the long hair, yeah, he does fit the narrative a lot. But he is way smarter than I think the public gives him credit for. Oh, yeah. Um, and much more devious, I think, than a hippie. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, 
Most hippies don't orchestrate uh, mass mur or murders, you know what I mean? Yeah, typically not. They're just hugging trees and smoking <laughs> weed. Smoking I trees. Think that's, <laughs> yeah, smoking trees, damn it. <laughs> this is why I have you on, Ben. <laughs> it sounds like you have some, some knowledge on the topic, so if I miss anything, hopefully you can jump in and correct me or throw something in. Ben, I'm mostly here for your quick quips, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll go from there. Try not to let you down. <laughs> All right, we're going to start off with the early years of Charles. Born on November 12, 1934 in Cincinnati, Ohio, Charles Manson was the son of a 16-year-old prostitute named Kathleen, who often started and ended the day with a bottle of liquor, uh, which nowadays is pretty common, but <laughs> back in the days, not so much. <laughs> Just a typical Friday night. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's pandemic. It's fine. <laughs> She christened her son Charles Mills Maddox, eventually changing his surname to the now infamous Manson when she married a local man named William Eugene Manson, who worked at a dry cleaning business. From the get-go, Kathleen showed little interest in being a mother to her son. During one instance, she took him to a cafe where a waitress, who found young Charles adorable, jokingly asked if she could buy him. In response, Kathleen said that her son could be exchanged for a pitcher of alcohol. After finishing this, she got up, left him at the cafe, and never looked back. It took Charles' uncle several days of frantically searching for him throughout the entire town before he managed to locate the waitress. Um, so you two are parents. I don't know, have you ever come into someone asking you to buy your kid? That seems a little weird. Not yet. Maybe we just haven't Not gone yet. enough places with him. <laughs> Maybe our kids just aren't that adorable. That too. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> My question is, I hope that that bottle was like a good one then, at least some top shelf liquor that was offered for him. <laughs> I'm going to guess it wasn't. It was at a cafe. <laughs> like, this is what we have under the counter. That's all we got left. Yeah. This, is, uh, this is what I brought into work today. So <laughs> here you go. Yeah, so pretty terrible start to his childhood already. You can clearly see where some of his repressed emotions come from. Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Due to his mother's indifference, Charles was instead shipped off to various relatives, all of whom failed to provide him with the warmth and welcoming home that he so badly craved. For instance, his grandmother was a religious nut. Well, one of his uncles frequently ridiculed his effeminate nature. Another uncle committed suicide upon learning that his properties would be seized, even though he had been his nephew's primary guardian at the time. Living with relatives did nothing for Charles, and so he attempted to reconcile with his mother in the hopes that she had discovered her maternal instincts during their time apart. He was sorely disappointed, though. Kathleen remained uninterested in playing the part of a mother to him. Overlooked by his relatives and ignored by his own mother, nine-year-old Charles began to seek attention elsewhere. His shoplifting antics landed him at the Gibbelt uh, School for Boys in Terre Haute, Indiana. It wasn't long before he had escaped from the facility, despite its strict security measures. <laughs> Very wily kid. <laughs> he's nine years old and he's shoplifting and, and uh, getting away with it, like escaping from basically a prison, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, I'll give it to him. He's already showing that criminal mind. <laughs> Very true, yeah. He's showing that he's smarter than uh, the average hippie already. Someone that we covered was at that same boys' school. Was it the lipstick killer, Ben? I think so. Interesting. What did, what did, okay, I have to, we have to go on this tangent. <laughs> what did the lipstick killer do? So he was connected to these three murders, but it's debatable. 
John okay. Douglas, the FBI guy, the Mindhunter guy, yeah. actually like backtracked not too long ago and said that he's convinced that William Hirons actually was not the killer. Very interesting. Yeah, but <laughs> supposedly he murdered three women. And that's why they call him the lipstick killer? Because he murdered women? So what was his second murder? He either took like a tube of lipstick from the victim or apparently brought his own and wrote a message on the wall saying something like in just of, you need to stop me now. I can't stop myself. And that's how he got dubbed the lipstick killer. Okay. Well, I mean, that, that's an interesting case. Uh, definitely go check that out. It's, it's kind of funny how, the, how they name killers back in the day. They're just like, oh, he used lipstick to write this one time. He's the lipstick killer now, even though it sounded like he was crying for help. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yes, yeah, um, he did not want to kill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So after Charles escaped, he was intercepted by authorities and sent back. However, this was only the beginning in a childhood filled with one youth reform school and one escape after another. The year that Charles turned 17 saw him arrested after being caught driving a stolen car across state lines. This wouldn't be his last time in federal prison, and when he was released for the last time on March 21st, 1967, he had already acquired a rap sheet that was a mile long, filled to the brim with various charges related to auto theft, assault, and petty larceny. His final prison involved a seven-year sentence at the McNeil Island Penitentiary in Purgate Sound, where he was taken after being convicted of crossing state lines with intent of prostitution. And while inside, he began flirting with the idea of Scientology and also began considering a career in music upon getting out. Charles did try to make it as a musician after his release. However, he instead became famous for something else entirely. I think we all know what that is, but uh, it is kind of cool that he he actually, well, not cool. I don't know what that's, that's the right word, but uh, he flirted with the idea of Scientology, which is very interesting. What's uh, crazy um, about that? So he took like 130 hours of like Scientology classes in prison. And even he was like, oh. this shit sounds a little too crazy for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but not for Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise <laughs> read that and he said, yeah, that sounds like my cup of tea. Just go jump on this couch. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I haven't done Scientology yet. I keep flirting with the idea of that as well. So <laughs> No, man, that um, might be your last episode, though. <laughs> can't wait. That'll be a fun one. <laughs> I'll make it a five-part series just to go out there and, you go. In, in flames. <laughs> They'll come after um, you. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm in Canada. Maybe they can't reach me up here. That's true. <laughs> After prison, Charles headed off to San Francisco, California, with only a guitar and a bag of hallucinogen drugs to his name, which is the best way to head to San Francisco. In my right. say, is there any other way to go to California in the 60s? <laughs> Absolutely I'm pretty not. sure they stop you at the state border and make sure that you have at least those two items. Yeah, they're like, sir, where's your guitar and your bag of drugs? Uh, he found the city's, the city's bohemian and young atmosphere incredibly appealing believing it to be the perfect source of inspiration for his music. Thanks to his innate charisma, he managed to attract a small group of young adults who shared his interests and beliefs. Among them was 22-year-old Mary Bruner, a Wisconsin native who worked as a librarian at the University of California's Berkeley campus. Charles was a decade older than Mary, however, this huge age gap didn't stop her from quickly falling in love with him. Enticed by the life he offered, which was a far cry from the monotonous existence that she'd been leading, he introduced her to hallucinogenic drugs and her usage increased, so does her obsession with him. Yeah, I mean, being a librarian, 
is definitely the monotonous part. <laughs> so <laughs> someone offers you drugs, you're going to probably go with uh, just to get some spark in your life. Typically, when you do more drugs, you need more drugs. <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who knows if she was actually into him or just the drugs and the drugs. I think that's a good question for a lot of his followers. <laughs> that's very true, actually. After moving in together, Mary quit her cushy job and began preaching to others about Charles' ideologies and the life that he could provide them f- with. With her persuasive words and his magnetism, they quickly amassed a small following. By 1968, 34-year-old Charles had become the leader of a group that he referred to as the family. It consisted of a like-minded group, uh, youth who found themselves enthralled with his sinister prophecies and religious teachings, which combined science fiction with the occult and fringe psychology. So, you know, Scientology, basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, there's a lot of overlap, I think, considering he took so many courses. In particular, Charles sold them on the idea that an apocalyptic war would soon lay waste to the United States, paving the way for the family to gain fame, power, and dominance. He claimed to have experienced visions of the scene, although experts would later claim that he had been merely suffering from delusions, which I think we probably could have all guessed. I don't know if we needed experts for that. Um, I think the Beatles but, knew all about that. God and the Beatles were talking directly to him. <laughs> well, he thought that the White Album, like, that yeah, was, was his message to him. <laughs> the Helter Skelter? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that actually, that's the next next paragraph. So you're you're right on track. I should just let uh, you take care of this. Well, I was gonna say so. Helter Skelter, like he thought, you know, he was convinced that that was the message to him about this crazy, like coming, like race war. But honestly, I think he just confused like the Black Power movement, and he was like really high, and he just wanted power, and he was also mad that he wasn't a rock star. I think he was just a racist. <laughs> oh, he was a huge racist but, as well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're exactly right with that. He he believed that the song Helter Skelter spoke to him and predicted, yeah, an inter- interracial war that would take place on the summer of 69, in which black Americans would rise and slaughter every single white American they laid their eyes on in revenge for what they and their ancestors had been put through. Which, if we're being honest, I wouldn't... 100% blame him for that. <laughs> yeah, it would have been appropriate, exactly. Yeah, hard to tell if he's a racist or if he just truly believed it from the drugs. It's, it's hard to tell. Probably a little bit of both. <laughs> You're probably right, actually, yeah, yeah. As terrifying as this vision was, Charles told his family that this, his prophecy had shown that they would all survive the massacre if they managed to hide in the underground city of gold in the heart of Death Valley. Charles delivered these sermons while high on a mix of LSD, magic mushrooms, and other hallucinogenic drugs. Given his innate charisma and passionate speeches, it was easy for him to convince followers what he was saying was the truth. I mean, I think if you're going to try and convince people, being high is probably the best way to do it because it takes away all your stage fright. You just immediately picture them all as insects or whatever. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Sound like you're speaking from experience. Uh, I do every single episode high on hallucinogenic, uh, hallucinogenic, I can't even speak. So it's all the drugs. You guys are just uh, a figment of my imagination. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You um, know, it also helps that he, it was a rule that his followers also had to do LSD. So it also helps when your audience is incredibly high as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it makes wa- watching terrible content that much more enjoyable, which 
I think most people watching Netflix can confirm. <laughs> well, and they drank Belladonna tea all the time too, so they were like really fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They. I had in my next sentence here. The they were also high on drugs. The members of the family saw their leader as a, a figure akin to Jesus Christ, a prophet whose words should be followed if they wanted a chance at life. So you could see how much they revered him, as you said, whether it be off the drugs or or actually believing his charisma. While Charles enjoyed his status as the head of the family, he continued to harbor dreams of his music career. This led him to approach one of his friends, a music teacher named Gary Heinemann, who in turn introduced him to Dennis Wilson, one of the co-founding members of the popular 1960s rock band, The Beach Boys. Dennis loved the song that Charles had come up with, even going so far as to record one of them under the title, Never Learn Not to Love. He also arranged a meeting with the renowned producer Terry Melcher. However, this amounted to nothing, and a disappointed Charles returned to his family. Uh, so, kind of following the same arc as uh, Hitler in a little bit here, not to compare the two, they're very different levels of terrible, but Hitler applied to go to art school and got rejected. And, you know, under that, like, it, it harbors a, a certain amount of anger, and, and I think that begins to come after this, as we'll probably see. <laughs> Yeah, it's like that's where it took a turn for like darker, more frenetic energy for him. Yeah, white men are fragile, and when <laughs> when, uh, when we are disappointed, it uh, doesn't go well in in the history, <laughs> which is uh, very sad. Um, <laughs> what was crazy about him meeting the meeting Dennis from the Beach Boys is he actually like moved in with Dennis for, oh, did for months. Yeah, him and his whole family. And part of the reason that Dennis really liked him was not because of his music, it but was because, yeah, like, oh, he yeah, basically he was... treated them as sex slaves and made them have sex with whoever, whenever they wanted, so that he could do, so Charles could do whatever he wanted. Do we have to cancel the Beach Boys? I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the next... Those uh, Ben. Yeah, those drummers yeah. get you. <laughs> and like so he the actual mansion that they moved into uh dennis's mansion so he was renting it after a few months he got sick of them and tried to kick them out but they just refused to leave and so dennis <laughs> literally just moved out himself <laughs> and the landlord oh, had to deal with it <laughs> oh my god that's that is terrible on like just what a way to treat people and Crazy to think he had so much success with the Beach Boys after all this. Yeah, that that's that's sad. And we're gonna start a hashtag cancel Beach Boys, uh, <laughs> even though I don't know if any of them are alive anymore. Uh, I think it's a little too late to cancel them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, after deciding that they and their ambitions had outgrown San Francisco, the family relocated to the abandoned Span Ranch, which was situated southwest of San Fernando Valley. It had been a popular filming location during the 1940s and 1950s playing a role in many thrillers and westerns at the time. It also proved to be the perfect place for the family, who turned the property into a compound reserve only for them, in the belief that this was the first step in surviving the apocalyptic racial war. <laughs> Just saying that, that is a ridiculous title. <laughs> Not everything went to plan, though. When the summer of 1969 came and went without a single black American seeking revenge, the family decided to take matters into their own hands to kickstart the conflict. They murdered Gary Heinemann, Charles' longtime acquaintance, on July 25th, 1969. <laughs> what a way to be like, oh, the race war didn't happen. Let's start our own. Like, what a, what, how do you Great come to that conclusion? There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll make the prophecy come true. It's, 
I don't know. That's some backwards logic, but I guess that's every cult. And then no follower was like, hmm, this does not seem right then. <laughs> yeah, the prophecy didn't come true. Hmm. Just got to wait a we little longer, s- guys. Yeah, I guess at that point, if you're a follower and you're that bought in, you're like, have I wasted my life and time just following this guy? Uh, it's It's hard to maybe face that reality, so you convince yourself of anything else i guess so this Um, is the time when like a lot of his followers started dropping off because of that reason and i think that's what pushed him to create it himself yeah which is a good point as well to help keep some kind of control over everything for sure charles told his followers that gary's death was for the public good but privately he had been under the impression that his friend had inherited approximately twenty thousand dollars which should have gone a long way in sustaining them at the relatively remote span ranch with the promise of a big payout, he ordered his most loyal followers, Bobby Soley, Susan Atkins, and Mary Bruner, to carry out the murder. But despite the trio's best effort at torturing Gary Hindman, he refused to budge and continued to assert that there was no money in his home. Frustrated, Charles sliced his ear and cheek with a samurai sword that he had brought with him. Nice. <laughs> well, if you're going to a murder, you might as well bring a samurai sword. What else what would else you bring? Gonna- Yeah, it's every nerd's dream. (laughs) They get to finally use it. Unsurprisingly, this left a huge mess, and 22-year-old Bobby Basoli was given the sordid task of cleaning everything up. However, he panicked and instead ended up killing Gary. This turned out for the best, though, with Charles deciding that they would use the body of his old friend to spark the apocalyptic interracial war that they had claimed would happen. So, always glass half full with Charles there. (laughs) Dipping their fingers into Gary's blood, Bobby and the two girls wrote the words political pig on the wall of their victim's home to further convince the authorities that it had been a racially motivated crime. They also drew a paw print which implied that the murder was committed by the controversial African-American organization, the Black Panthers. I don't know if they thought that entirely through. I mean, I guess they're thinking on the fly here, but like, why would the Black Panthers like mark the wall like to let everyone know that they did it i don't think that accomplishes much you know what i mean the worst way to try to frame them yeah like be a little bit more subtle about it the police weren't convinced that gary had been killed by the black panthers obviously (laughs) and a few days after the murder they arrested bobby soli whom they found sleeping inside the victim's car Still in the bloody clothes that he had yeah (laughs) still in the bloody clothes so like it's like you couldn't have been anywhere else you know what i mean you basically should have just waited by the dead body <laughs> and just fall yeah. asleep there for him yeah well exactly yeah he should have just waited and said i did it it was definitely not the black panthers arrest me now <laughs> that's essentially what he did he also attempted to conceal the knife that, that he had used in his trunk tire uh, trunk tire although this was quick, quickly uncovered too so clearly a mastermind um in the end bobby was convicted of gary's murder and sentenced with the death penalty which was later commuted to life imprisonment. His arrest, however, came only a few days before the family committed the horrific massacres that they would eventually become known for. Yeah, so that's a, that's a heavy one. Uh, Bobby, uh, it's tough because I know he comes out later on in life talking about how he felt he was influenced very strongly and like it, it, he couldn't be blamed for the murders necessarily but uh, yeah definitely not the smartest move to sleep in the car and <laughs> and not even try to get away with it lsd is um, a hell of a drug man <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> and whatever the tea was that you mentioned <laughs> on august 9th 1969 charles manson ordered four members of his family ted watson 
Suzanne Atkins, Lyndon Casabina, and Patricia Krenwinkel to head up to 11050 Toledo Drive in Los Angeles, where they would murder the people inside. This property belonged to the music producer Terry Melcher, who had once looked down on Charles and his dreams of a music career. At the time, though, the home had been leased to the actress Sharon Tate, who was married to the world-renowned film director Roman Polanski. Roman was away working on a movie set in Europe, though, and his heavily pregnant wife was being visited by her friends, Jay Sebring, Wojcinski, Rakowski, and Abigail uh, Fuller, Fuller, Folger, Folgers, Folgers. Yes. Okay, thank you. Her family does the coffee. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Folger she's the heir coffee. to the Folger coffee, or was. God damn, there's so many like cool little tidbits of facts in this story, <laughs> like because I guess it is in Hollywood, right? So yeah, so everyone's related there. to someone. And then yeah, that, one of the guys that was there was her ex fiance. I think oh. it was like Jay Sebring was her was her ex fiance. Oh, was Sharon Tate's ex-fiance. Yeah, 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 yeah. All four of them were inside the home on Silo Drive when the family broke in, upon which they put up a valiant struggle in a bid to save their lives. However, they were no match for Charles' followers, who had armed themselves to the teeth with guns and knives, and probably very high, so they just do not give a shit. Uh, if we can assume anything from the past many years, they're probably oh, yeah. high as well. <laughs> Sharon did all she could to save the life of her unborn child, even going so far as to beg the family to allow her to give birth in the living room. Her pleas went unheeded, though, and ultimately every single person in the house was found with multiple horrific stab wounds. Jay Sebring had seven. Abigail Folger had over 28. So they clearly didn't like the coffee. Uh, that's a terrible <laughs> joke. But uh, Frikowski suffered 51 and Sharon Tate had 16. Besides these four, the family also killed a man named Stephen Parent, who unluckily enough had decided to stop by the property as he was the caretaker. Charles had ordered his family to leave behind a witchy sign, and so Susan Atkins, in a horrifying echo of the first murder, used Sharon Tate's blood to write the word pig on the front door. I don't know. (laughs) He clearly didn't learn from the first they were um, not buying into it. Yeah, that the, the pigs, like, what is that going to do? Well, also, the, that's what the Black Panthers referred to as the police. As police. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to name these high-profile white people as pigs. Like, that's not what they would have done anyway. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and, and on, <laughs> on top of it, you're connecting it to the, the very last murder where the guy who was very heavily involved in your group <laughs> killed someone. So it... They're obviously going to, it's going to lead to you guys very clearly. Well, <laughs> it's they're, not a, they're masterminds. That's what they are. Yeah, Geniuses. Yeah. Maybe Ben is right. This guy is just a dumb hippie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this actually happened like three or four days before Woodstock. Wow. Okay. They could have been like getting high and listening to music and making yeah. their voyage, but instead they were off killing people. They could have been enjoying the Beach Boys because <laughs> they were probably there. <laughs> Other ways connected. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Well, everyone inside that Silo Drive home had been slain. The turn of events was far from what Charles had originally envisioned. In particular, the panic that the victims experienced, as well as Abigail Folger's near successful escape attempt, disgusted him, as he desired a clean and neat crime scene. So, (laughs) a bit of an OCD guy for murders. Nothing else, though. (laughs) He's, uh... He's also apparently, like, really mad that they didn't steal more, like, money and items for money, you know, to... Because apparently at this time that they were like extremely hungry and like incredibly broke. Yeah, but they were high as shit. Like you're going to ask a bunch of (laughs) young kids high on LSD to actually do shit properly. (laughs) 
Come on. That, yeah, exactly. They're they're just a bunch of, as Ben said, they're a bunch of hippies. How do you expect them to perform a clean cut murder and and get away un unscathed? And I mean, fair enough. They should have definitely took more money because what do they really get up from this murder? They get this false sense of they're gonna frame the Black Panther movement. <laughs> like I, I don't understand really what they're getting from all of this. You know, I think some of them really were psychopaths and sociopaths, and they would have at some point done something terrible regardless because Susan bragged to her jailmate about the murders and she said that she was planning on cutting out Tate's baby out of her belly but she just didn't have enough time to do it well that is Jesus so just to get dark for a second (laughs) we also don't stab someone 50 what 51 times 57 times if like you're not enjoying it and then somebody else got stabbed 27 times like, yeah, they clearly were either overly enthusiastic or they got pleasure out of it. Yeah. At that point, it's like you've almost stabbed a total of, I don't know, quick math. It's over 80 times, probably like in total. That's pretty crazy. I don't know what Wojcinski or uh, sorry. Yeah. Kerwinkle. Whatever. Her name is so weird. Kerp. Yeah, it is a very weird name. I don't know why they decided to stab them for 51 times. Maybe she was fighting back more. I don't I don't know, but. There, yeah, as you said, Ben, it's clearly there's some sort of uh, enjoyment out of the entire thing where they probably could have stabbed them five times and finished the job and then got the money, wrote pig on the door because they needed to and then gotten out of there. But uh, yeah, clearly not masterminds in any sense of the word. Again, he was frustrated by his family's failure to correctly carry out his orders, which was why the following day on August 10th, he ordered them to drive out from Spain Ranch once more. This time he increased the band of murderers by including two more of his loyal followers, Leslie Van Houten and Clem Grogan. He also accompanied the group in order to show them how to properly and neatly murder people. Because uh, what better way to get hands-on experience from your teacher, am I right? Of course. The family headed to 3301 Waverly Drive, where the supermarket executive Leno LaBianca and his wife Rosemary lived. There, they bound the couple and covered their heads with pillowcases, which they secured in place using a lamp cord that they had found in the living room. Tex Watson, the de facto leader of the group, ordered the woman to take Rosemary into the bedroom before proceeding to stab Leno with a bayonet. His final thrust went straight through the businessman's throat, a fatal blow that undoubtedly ended his life. However, the women were less successful with Rosemary, who fought them off by viciously swinging the lamp tied around her neck. (laughs) Even though the pillowcase obscured her vision, Tex Watson had to be called inside the room where he stabbed her with the bayonet that had been used to kill her husband. Leslie Van Houten later stabbed her as well. So yeah, kind of, it's a sad ending, but I mean, kudos to Rosemary for fighting off. Like, getting the lamp tied around her neck seems to be like... swinging it? Yeah, just just going to town, fighting off... Uh, a group of people that's, that's bad for her yeah that is badass uh, if, if we should remember any name it's hers before leaving the property the family again sought to leave behind their mark because you can't not do it am i right just had to <laughs> stick with it yeah on leno's abdomen tex watson carved the word war while patricia wrote rise and death to pigs on the wall of leblanc's house using their blood and on the couple's refrigerator door, she also misspelled. Uh, she also put a misspelled version of Helter Skelter in reference to the interracial war that they were trying to start. She had one job, <laughs> just one job. 
Hilter Skelter. She she had two, okay? She had to write Rise and Death to Pigs as well, all right? That's as much as she could remember correctly. (laughs) She got hit in the head with a lamp. What do you want from her? (laughs) Yeah, they're just trying so hard to start this race war, and it's clearly not. They're like Death to Pigs, but y'all haven't killed any, like, actual pigs yet. Yeah. (laughs) Like, no cops have been murdered. You're killing, like, high-profile white people and then really old white people. Like, come on. Yeah, I, I have no doubt if they tried to, like, kill anyone that was, like, even remotely trained, that they would not not have gone on this long. Like, they would have been story. stopped. Yeah, immediately. And not to say, like, like Rosemary tried her, like, fought off and, and tried her best. And it is a terrible thing that's happened to these people, but uh, they're definitely picking on people who are... They're in a, a more vulnerable state, like a pregnant woman and old people, you know? It's not... Easy prey. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of disgusting. The murder scene on Waverly Drive may have been much cleaner than the one on Celio Drive, but it was no less horrific. A medical examiner later found out that Lino LeBlanc sported 12 stab wounds while his wife's body bore 41, Jesus. many of which had been done post-mortem. So, as you said, Karen, it's, it's very clear that they enjoyed all of this. It's kind of disgusting. Oh, and Susan Atkins, the same one, she defecated, like, in the house, not in the restroom, but, like, on a staircase on the way out just to like further add insult to injury. Lovely. And we didn't have DNA stuff back then. So I guess it was probably harder to identify, but uh, that is a next level sociopath, psychopath. I don't even know what you'd classify that as. I'm just trying to picture like putting myself in their situation. You've just murdered a bunch of people and you're still at the crime scene. There's no way I could defecate. Like I would be <laughs> like not at way. all. Hey man, when you gotta go, you gotta go. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. That's true. I guess I'm going before. I'm like it was that I'm, bad like, text mix. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. Hi Fred, future Josh here. Realizing after the fact that he forgot to record a terrible intro for his advertisements, and the companies that support me demand them. So imagine that I had said. You know who doesn't stab people 41 times? Oh, Jesus. No, that's that's way too dark. Uh, you, you know who doesn't give the youth of America hallucinogenic drugs? No, no. What if, what if a drunk company sponsors me? Oh, you know who doesn't want to start a race war? The products and services that support this podcast. Please enjoy some ads. This podcast is brought to you by Audible. Have you been wanting to read more but don't seem to have the time? Well, with Audible, you can read your books without having to find the extra time in your busy schedule. Stuck in traffic on your way home from work? Why not marathon the Harry Potter books? In the gym and want to learn about the First Lady? Well, you can listen to Becoming Michelle Obama while doing Leg Day. And if you go to audibletrial.com slash cultivate, you get a month free of Audible. That includes one credit that you can trade in for any audiobook of your choice, access to thousands of audiobooks free to listen to with your account, and... Best of all, you have access to all of your favorite podcasts in the app as well. So be sure to go to my link, audibletrial.com slash cultivate. That's C-U-L-T-I-V, the number eight, to sign up for a free month of Audible and start reading today. Thank you, Audible, for supporting the show. Terms and conditions apply. It took the local authorities several months to determine who was behind the tragic murders, But in December 1969, they finally caught up to Charles Manson and the family. A few months later, on July 24, 1970, their trial began. There was no doubt that Charles had orchestrated the murders. However, that didn't stop several members of his family from continuing to support him. 
In fact, Kathy Gillis, Kitty Lutzinger, Sandy Good, and Brendan McCain all kept a vigil throughout the entire trial, kneeling on the hot sidewalk outside of the Los Angeles Hall of Justice with their shaved heads bowed in solidarity. He also so. made, like, some of them carve X's into their forehead. Like, they were still doing literally whatever he told them did to do. Did he make them, or did they just or, do it? So they saw him do it, and then they did oh. the same thing, and then they turned... Because it's his started as an X before it became a swastika. So they were just copying uh, him. That's not great. <laughs> like <laughs> That just shows you like what kind of power and manipulation he had over them. That even after he's arrested, not even telling them anything, they're still just following blindly. Yeah, they shaved yeah. their heads and carved the X's on their foreheads. Yeah, what was the whole deal with shaving their heads? Like, why, why did they do that? Maybe it was just way too hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the hot sidewalk off gets the- you, man. <laughs> Yeah, I, I honestly, I'm not sure why they shaved their heads. I don't think they even knew. Yeah, it could have just been at that point. You're probably going crazy from the heat. Maybe. <laughs> um, the defense put up a good fight, but the evidence was just too overwhelming and impossible to refute. They also had to deal with the sentiment of a horrified American public who couldn't stomach the idea of how much a bunch of wealthy people living in a huge gated mansion was brutally killed by a group whom they perceived to be mere drugged up hippies. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fair. Uh, um, you know, all the parents that were like telling their kids, oh, you can't do drugs. You don't want to be a hippie. You're going to turn out to this. And they're like, no, nah, man, we're just about peace and love. And then this happens. <laughs> and the parents are like, I told you. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm going to be honest. I think this this had a huge influence on, on America when it comes to like drug legalization, I think. Well, then Nixon uh, got elected. So, yeah, like it. Yeah. Both of these right back are back to back is why we're <laughs> in the state that we're in today. <laughs> Yeah, well, you guys could have been taxing drugs for years, and you'd be it'd be great, right? I never murdered anyone high on LSD. <laughs> that you remember? Yes, that I remember. That's true. Uh, are there paw prints or or any uh, any blood stains all over your house? Ben? Shit, that's what that is. <laughs> she tried to say that it was our kids drawing on the walls. <laughs> oh goddamn! Didn't look like Crown. <laughs> All of those involved in the Tate LeBlanca massacre were ultimately found guilty. On June 25, 1971, Charles Manson was convicted of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder, which landed him the death penalty. Capital punishment, however, was outlawed by the California Supreme Court the following year, which was why his sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. Which, if there's anyone who probably deserved the death penalty, it might have been him. (laughs) He might have deserved it. During his incarceration, Charles reportedly received more mail than any other prisoner in the United States, most of these containing questions regarding his motivations, given that he apparently had no personal connection with any of the victims in the Tate LeBlanca murder. They also asked how he managed to turn a group of liberal, peace-loving, and free-thinking youths into mass murderers cruel enough to kill a pregnant woman. Which are fair questions. (laughs) Drugs. Drugs, yeah. Well, that's a lot of people do assume there's more to that, but that's a lot of conspiracy stuff. With the FBI and right. mind control and probably bullshit, but you never know. <laughs> well, LSD alone is not going to make you murder no, people no. at all. But it makes them Absolutely very, not. very susceptible to bullshit preaching from somebody that they think is the son of God. Yeah, I guess my only pushback to that would be that I've I've covered quite a few cults at this point, and someone can control young people without drugs. It, it, there's a lot of those as well. I think it, the drugs definitely maybe worked quicker into him controlling them and maybe took it to a further extent uh, than most other cults that I have covered. 
But for younger people, they are just mostly looking for some sort of answer to the life's questions. They're not getting it from from life, I guess. And so they 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 go searching and, and a lot of them find like a lot of these charismatic leaders and, and start to follow them. And so I, I would say I would argue it probably wasn't just the drugs, it probably played a part. But uh, like these young girls, like he knew exactly who he was preying on. Most of them had like huge abandonment issues. They were incredibly young. They didn't have the best relationship with their families. And one of the things Patty said in one of her interviews was that, you know, she joined the group and then she immediately slept with Manson. And he was the first person to ever even tell her that she was beautiful. And she said from that moment on, like he literally could do no wrong in her eyes. Yeah, that and and that's what it is, right? It's it's young people who don't necessarily know any better, and you just want to uh, belong. Yeah, yeah, and belong in a group that that will will welcome you. And it's not like he just. It's not like as soon as he created the group, he was like, well, uh, "All right, we hate black people." Uh, there's going to be race everyone, war. Yeah. Like it, it, it's like boiling a frog in water. Like you, you slowly raise the temperature, and before long, the frog's dead. Like that's that's a morbid description but that's basically what it is they he eases them into it and then gets all these um young and vulnerable people into the group and then slowly raises the temperature of of the circumstances and and what the group's about so i know a lot of them uh, a lot of the followers and in interviews have said that he just had this uncanny ability to make you feel like the most special person on earth and yeah like just that alone, if you're, you know, and then you seek out vulnerable people that are coming from broken families or, you know, a broken situation, just that in it, in and of itself will make you, you know, stick with that person forever. That's exactly it. Yeah. However, he also received letters from people claiming to be his fans, as well as from women who expressed their deep affection for him. Besides praising his work, they also declared their staunch belief in his ideologies and his sermons. Charles attempted to be granted parole multiple times throughout the years However, all of his applications were unsurprisingly rejected. The massacre that he had ordered his family to carry out had shattered the sense of safety and security that the American public enjoyed, and so the authorities were more than reluctant to let him back out on the streets, which is fair. I mean, <laughs> like, I would have done the same. Yeah, we. I think we all would. It's said that after 1969, no one in the United States felt truly safe inside their homes ever again. Bit of a, bit of a. Overstretch, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Charles Manson lived out the rest of his days inside prison, dying of natural causes on November 19th, 2017. He was 83 years old. Given the brutal chain of events that Charles Manson integrated, it isn't surprising at all that he became an object of fascination for psychologists around the world. Many have diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder due to how he exploited others without displaying an ounce of remorse. He has also been identified as a sociopath who thrived on manipulating and controlling others. This seems to be in line given how he managed to get his family to kill eight people simply by informing them of an apocalypse that was allegedly about to happen. Psychological studies into Charles Manson and his family continue to this day. However, there is a chance that we will never know the true depths of his evil. And that is the Manson family. Before we move on, was there anything I missed? Any any big things? I know you're an expert, Karen. Uh, I want to hear uh, if there was anything big I missed, anything major that we overlooked. Uh, Shorty's death, because that's the only person that Manson actually ever killed. Oh, interesting. When the police first raided the ranch, they weren't even there because of the murders. The police hadn't even connected that yet. 
So they were actually there because of stolen dune buggies and shit. Um, Very interesting. And Manson convinced the the family that Shorty Shea, who was a drug dealer, that he had tipped the police about the stolen cars. So him, Bruce Davis, and Tex Watson went over to his place and Manson shot him. So when everyone says Manson's never actually killed anyone, it's actually not true because he did. Okay. He just, That's very interesting. Yeah, he just wasn't involved in, you know, the big sensationalized murders. Well, so now I have so many more questions. So he used a gun to murder Shorty, you said, right? Yeah, he shot him. Why was that not a thing later on? Like, why did they just not use guns to make it cleaner and quicker? That's does, a very uh, does good anyone question. know? No, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, that's because uh, if I'm Charles, like he's like, oh, I, I like a clean. Like, dang, that was so easy. <laughs> yeah, like I've done this already. I know how I know how easy it is. Like, why not just continue that? Or like, because the Black Panther just definitely had guns. I don't know. Like, if he's trying to connect the two, it wouldn't make a difference that way. Yeah, that's weird. I, I, but that's a very. I'm, I apologize for uh, looking over that one. There's just so much with this with this cult. It, there's a lot of information. So about those doom buggies, though, so the uh, apocalyptic, you know, interracial war that was coming, he preached that they were going to survive it in that city. So according to his his preaching, though, that that city was at like the bottom of a huge pit in the middle of the desert. Yeah, Death Valley. Yeah. So so apparently like every day he would make like two of his followers hop in on doom buggies and like ride around the desert looking for that pit multiple times. (laughs) What a waste! <laughs> what a waste of time. Just riding around the desert aimlessly, looking for a bottomless yeah. pit. Okay, so I just looked it up real quick, and I was wrong. He was not shot; he was stabbed. No, okay, that so makes more sense. I then. stand corrected. Yeah. My memory's just shit. No, no, that's no problem. Makes more sense. That's in line with the murders. Then, because I was like, how? Why would he just shoot him and then not shoot anyone else? But that, I was like, that, hey, Google. <laughs> <laughs> Google knows. Yeah, true. Yeah, Google knows everything. He's watching us right now, or he. What do you think Google is? It. They. It. They. Yeah, true. Now, before we end off the show, we have to do my favorite segment that we do after every cult called Cult Critiques. Basically, my guests and I take a look at the cult we just discussed, and we give it a rating out of five stars, uh, as if you were rating something on Yelp, and we give comments on why we gave them that rating. So are you guys ready to rate the Manson family? Let's do it. Awesome. Uh, ben, do you want to go first? How many stars are you giving the Manson family? I'm going to give it three and a half. That's solid. Why, why, why three and a half? Come there for a good time, but then you leave hungry <laughs> and as a murderer. <laughs> it's like, it's like every, uh, every, uh, what am I thinking? It's like of? every music festival I've been every to. Every music festival. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It's like every music festival ever. You, you uh, go in, have a good time, and then you come out with like a worst hangover ever. Uh, Karen, you're, you're up. How many stars are you given? I want to say one, but I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to give the Manson cult a five. Ooh. This might uh, be the first five star we've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what the fuck? Who, Who did, did I, I marry? marry? <laughs> She's like, I wrote many letters to Manson. <laughs> no, so I am a reformed hippie, and I did a lot of music festivaling and... Uh, yeah. Soul searching. <laughs> in, in my former years. So... Had I been alive in 1969 when Manson was collecting family members, I can see why they joined the cult. I can see why they stuck around. I probably would have been on the Volkswagen (laughs) little 
beetle buzz that they had. Yeah. <laughs> then you would have been driving around the desert. And I would be in prison afterwards without like <laughs> signing up for that. But well, I, I don't think you would have actually gone and committed the murder. You'd have been like, mm, no, this is where I peace out. But I would probably be like squeaky because squeaky never like she wasn't involved in the murders, but then she like still stuck by him and like went to court every day. And I feel with your with your obsession of true crime, you'd be there at every crime scene with a notebook, just <laughs> jotting it all down. This is what you did wrong this time. <laughs> yeah, guys, we can do this so much better. I've wrote, written out everything. But we Next could, time, don't shit on, on the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sharon, you're really shit in the bed here. We gotta... <laughs> oh. Uh. That's awesome. Well, I, I love those reviews. Those are perfect. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Karen, Ben, if you don't mind, please uh, let my listeners know where they can find your podcast. Yeah, man. You can hit us up on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get a podcast. You can find us on our website as well, crimeandcompulsion.com. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys coming out. Uh, thank you, Fred, for listening, and we will see you guys next time. Thank you. It was fun. This podcast is brought to you by Audible. Have you been wanting to read more, but don't seem to have the time? Well, with Audible, you can read your books without having to find the extra time in your busy schedule. Stuck in traffic on your way home from work? Why not marathon the Harry Potter books? In the gym and want to learn about the First Lady? Well, you can listen to Becoming Michelle Obama while doing leg day. And if you go to audibletrial.com cultivate, you get a month free of Audible. That includes one credit that you can trade in for any audiobook of your choice, access to thousands of audiobooks free to listen to with your account, and best of all, you have access to all of your favorite podcasts in the app as well. So be sure to go to my link, audibletrial.com slash cultivate, that's C-U-L-T-I-V, the number eight, to sign up for a free month of Audible and start reading today. Thank you, Audible, for supporting the show.